and a warm welcome to Tuesday Home Time on this 18th of October. Today we hear of an amazing journey of a US college student to the foundation of a humanitarian organisation which has assisted thousands of Palestinian children and it's been going and growing for the past 31 years. I'll be speaking to the founder, Steve Sotheby. Sasha Gillies-Lekarkis talking about his topic for his PhD, which focuses on Cuba and a number of Pacific Island countries. Shannon Airport in Ireland, how a number of Irish governments have assisted the US war machine, even though Ireland is in the eyes of the international community a neutral country. I'll be speaking with Edward Horgan from Shannon Watch. And Dr. Tim Anderson is just back from Syria, Iraq and Lebanon. But let's start off, as usual, with Mr. Kevin Healy. And he's had another one of those weeks. Uh, A week when the deputy caring business class party supremo Susan Lees and Dregs attacked the tail independents over tax cuts for the filthy rich. Not for opposing them, of course, but for not supporting them vigorously enough. Tax cuts which, which, after all, she pointed out, are in their constituents' interests, showing, she said, only the caring business class party can truly represent the filthy rich. This despite one of the teals, Kylie Ting, telling a City Investment Bank conference Wednesday she did support the cuts, indeed considered many of the filthy rich beneficiaries not rich, leaving us to ponder, one, her definition of rich, and two, what she would think of her constituents if she represented a working class seat. Not that there's any danger of that, and good news, former socialist big supremo Julia Gorlinghardt also attended the City Investment Bank conference, discussing how investors can make an even bigger killing. She's back in Troubadouasi briefly to promote a new book. Imagine how poor socialist Julia must have felt surrounded by the class enemy, a socialist in King Capital's court. As an aside, on January 26, 1988, the bicentenary, as the reenactment of the first fleet came through the heads, just to rub it in a bit more for the Indigenous people, I was with, at Lady Macquarie's Point, a place name also rubbing it in, the first two ships, sales, advertising hoardings really, Coke and Citibank, and I thought the second invasion represents the world's new empire. Anyway, we asked Susan, given her commitment to the filthy rich, representing the filthy rich, if she would also criticise MPs and the poorest of the poor electorates for failing in their duty, not supporting their constituents strongly enough. Are better pay and conditions, livable incomes, access to housing, to education, to public transport, health, open space, action on climate change and pollution, gender equality, that sort of thing, Susan. Why should we support electorates that don't support our progressive good-for-everyone policies? But, having said that, tax cuts for the rich are in the best interests of those people, as that extra wealth and jobs will trickle down to them as undeserving as they are. Oh yes, the famous yellow liquid. 
On climate change, if there is such a thing, more than a hundred Trublawazi and Pacific religious leaders and indigenous groups signed an open letter to big supremo Anthony Albinguzi calling for policies that are none of their keep-your-noses-out-of-politics business, like addressing climate change if there is, blocking new coal and gas ventures, ending corporate welfare to the great fossil behemoths, transition assistance for workers, help for indigenous communities protecting their traditional lands, claiming the most vulnerable people and ecosystems are at risk. We hear the cries of anguish from those most vulnerable in the human family, losing their lives, their livelihoods and homes through climate fuel disasters. The current level of warming is not safe. This moment in history calls for an urgent, courageous, visionary response, especially from those in power. Yeah, well, good luck with that. Urgent, courageous, visionary from politicians? One indigenous signatory, Anne Polina, blasphemed against the urgent, courageous visionaries with political support for the resource extraction industry is at times brutal as it exerts corporate dominance over the interests of the true Blue Aussie people. Showing how long-haired, commie, greenie, wouldn't work in an eye, lots have infiltrated at least a hundred or so of the dear baby Jesus and Yahweh and Allah and Buddha lots. But fear not. Normality returned with Anthony ruling out a moratorium on fossil projects. Any, morator- any such move would damage employment and economic activity. Far more important than the extreme climate, extreme weather activity, the most vulnerable and indeed almost everyone else are enjoying across the planet. Destined, it seems, to keep enjoying as long as the planet survives, or more correctly, life on the planet survives. Much less important than than employment and economic activity. So obviously Anthony knows that alternatives to fossils provide no employment or economic opportunities or activity. Fossils Minister Chris Bowender Capital, who continues to live up to his name, called for the Socialist Party to re-engage with faith communities. Yeah, well, his determination to continue approving fossil projects should do wonders for that. Still, even if we support extracting more coal and gas, we will address climate change by stopping cows burping and farting. Well, good luck with that one too. Oh, and Lord Rupert of Wapping's well-informed readers would have had no idea of that open letter item. Obviously an item in the news they don't need to know, as determined by Lord Rupert and his editorial lackeys. But one lackey, the usual suspect columnist, may well inform them, given he will be so distraught that religious leaders could be so fooled by the warmest who preach the climate change lies. He would understand indigenous leaders being fooled because, well, because they are so foolish, foolish anti-white racists. His column on this issue should be a must-read. A similar great anti-white racist mind. Good news this week, I thought, when one of our favourites, former Hayseed and Sheepshit Party Supremo Barnacle, disappeared into the back bench, we'd lost him, but good old Barnacle reappeared this week, similarly opposing anti-white racists, equating an indigenous voice to Nazi racist legislation, showing that Barnacle opposes Nazi racist legislation. Or we think it shows that, given it's almost impossible ever to understand what he's talking about. 
One of the great supporters of indigenous rights, mining and pastoral, filthiest of the filthy rich, twitty for resting profits off us, we know because he keeps telling us that anyway his family pastoral interests employed the indigenous people they displaced, providing them with beads and mirrors and tobacco and lots of goodies. Poor Twitty has to face the federal court next year sitting on traditional land in the Pilbara where the Yinjabandi Aboriginal Corporation reckons Twitty's mining interests caused, without bothering to seek an indigenous land use agreement, as much damage as Rio Tato, the planet, managed at Duke and Gorge. Indeed, the court has already ruled that way, and the hearing is to assess damages. Poor Twitty attempted to appeal the decision in the High Court, but was thwarted when the Western Trublo Aussie government supported the Aboriginal Corporation and opposed the High Court hearing the appeal. The Yinjabandi people say say Twitty destroyed hundreds of sacred and significant sites and sadly for Twitty the compensation could exceed 500 mil thankfully though a very small percentage of Twitty's wealth and anyway he knows what it's like having mining companies encroaching on your land he, he took a rival company to the high court when it wanted to explore on his pastoral properties a right Twitty assumed for himself but my god don't do it to me he won the case if a fundraiser for Twitty is required, I'll let you know closer to the hearing. Back to the great investment banks that do so much for all of us. The Luddite resistance to progress by evil unions was exemplified yet again when the finance sector union announced it would oppose a very sensible time-saving device by the muck quarry of Profits Bank. Avoid the time-consuming necessity to keep work time records for workers by scrapping little conditions like meal breaks, rostered days off, overtime, penalty rates, annual leave loadings and public holiday entitlements. Applying to the fair work, True Blue Aussie no longer work choices just looks like a con mission to have the banking award amended to allow such sensible exemptions. And what does the evil union do? It says it will fight the application. On what grounds? Macquarie, the profits provide certainty. Its workers know they must work 24 hours a day, seven days a week for the same pay. Macquarie can, they can make a killing for its shareholders, which will trickle down to those workers in the long run. Maybe the very, very long run, but there we have it. Win, win. Although, I'm not absolutely certain its application would pass the better off overall test. It could be lucky and get caring business class party totally neutral appointee Sophia Mirabella Cosa hearing the case and then it would win hands down. Macquarie the profits, she would rule, will be much, much, much better off. And anyway, the bank has an impeccable reputation as a caring employer. Unless we unfairly take into account the 15 mil it was forced to repay workers it had ripped off or, sorry, inadvertently underpaid. Yes, yet another example of evil unions resisting progress. And two things happened at Sydney University this week. It rose four places on the Higher Education World University ranking. And then, what thanks did it get from the staff who achieved this? They went on strike. Strike! What ingrates! Claiming management had dragged out new enterprise agreement negotiation for 15 months. Key sticking points being the size of a pay increase, 
Yes, lazy, avaricious worker, greed yet again. And protections against overwork and unpaid work, especially for casual staff. The union made outlandish claims like it was the staff's hard work that carried the uni through the pandemic and led to its jump in the rankings. And to compound the injustice, it is also collecting evidence it claims of wage theft, as if. Just because the uni was sprung last year with 15 mil, that seems to be the going figure this week, 15 mil in underpayments with the evil union declaring, and how's this for long-haired commie hyperbole, underpayment is baked into the business model of the university. What proof have they got? Well, other than the 15 mil. And anyway, even if the hyperbole is correct, it would be baked into the business model inadvertently. Meanwhile, also up north, the evil New South Wales Teachers Federation was fined $60,000 for taking industrial action breaching a court ban, although on one level it was pretty lucky. The Education Department argued it should be fined 540000 Interesting, the 60000 it was fined is three times the fine we mentioned last week for a young woman losing her right hand in a mincer. Remember her caring employer telling her to stop screaming she was frightening the customers? And double the fine a trucking company copped for killing a worker, showing finally how the law understands evil union industrial action is so much more heinous than injuring and killing workers. Dear Australian Friends of Palestine Association, Thank you for your generous donation that supplied 440 children throughout the Gaza Strip with eyeglasses. The eyeglasses were distributed throughout North, Central and South Gaza. Because of your donation, these children received the medical relief and care they need and deserve. Please find the financials and photos of the projects below. If you need anything else, please contact me. That's the thank you response from the US Humanitarian Organisation Palestine Children's Relief Fund to the Adelaide Palestine Support Association. So today we focus on PCRF and its work in Palestine and the person whose idea it was is Steve Sussebeck, the President and Founder. When I spoke with Steve at his home in Ohio, I asked him first what was his work and life prior to the setting up of PCRF. What you were doing, that this fund was set up in 1992. What was your former career that took you to Palestine? I first got interested in going to Palestine in 1988 when I was on a student human rights delegation. I had been in university and on the issue of uh, Palestinian human rights and was selected to go with a group of other college students during winter break for a three-week fact-finding mission to the West Bank and Gaza Strip and for us to see for ourselves firsthand what were the conditions on the ground there. And that experience as a college student studying international relations and political science changed my life because I had never really had the opportunity to go to um, a place that was under the kind of political and economic and social conditions that the Palestinians were living under. And seeing that firsthand and also establishing human connections with people there, rather than from the abstract perspective of the world of academia, um, really moved me emotionally. So I went back. I became very much committed to the cause. I very strongly believe 
in equal rights, in justice, in human rights, and political equality and freedom. And those are all issues which are very much related to the Palestinian cause and to serving the cause of peace in Palestine comes through equality and self-determination. So to work for peace and to work for freedom, one's obligation first is to work for uh, social justice and an end to the Israeli military occupation of the West Bank and Gaza. So I went back as an activist to start working as a journalist and a freelance writer where I would share the stories and share the human connections and the human stories on the ground in Palestine that I encountered every day there, the people who were struggling to live normal lives, which I think the vast majority of Americans were simply cut off from, either through the lack of coverage in our media or so many other issues in our education system, not really being transparent or objective in preparing people to understand the facts that were the reality of Palestinian life on the ground. I wanted to share those stories. I felt, especially as Americans, we have a particular responsibility because our tax money goes to supporting the occupation of the West Bank and Gaza. We give billions and billions of dollars every year and have given hundreds of billions of dollars in military aid and political support and so on to enable the Israelis to continue to support an illegal military occupation of the West Bank and Gaza. So I went back and worked, started working as a journalist and a writer, and I was very young, out of college. And it was a very exciting time because the Palestinian first uprising called the Intifada was well underway and is terrible of a time that was for those people who were being affected and impacted through the violence and through the hardship and sacrifice and suffering that was going on every day there. It was also an exciting time because there was so much hope that people were taking the cause of self-determination and liberty into their own hands. I had that opportunity to see that firsthand and experience that firsthand. And one day during the course of writing the story about some injured children. I met a boy from the West Bank who had lost two legs in his hand and an eye. He was only 10 years old. and was ter- terribly maimed in the hospital. I went to see him and cover his story and became friends with him and his family and uh, felt very much that I wanted to do something to help this child and to do more um, than just write words on paper. It was a very frustrating kind of way as an activist, a young activist who wanted to see change and try to help pr- hopefully bring about change in that more in that very idealistic way that uh, that you have at that period of your life, doing so as a writer was, was not giving me the sense of accomplishment. So I um, I took this boy's photograph and um, returned to my home in Ohio because at that time I would um, work as a landscaper in Ohio and save my money and then go back to Palestine and work as a writer and a journalist until my money ran out. Then I would go back home and save more and. I went back home and shared that photo of this boy with some doctors near where I live, and I was very fortunate to find humanitarian response by the medical community near my home who agreed to take care of him and treat him for free. So this was in 1990, and I went back and got him and his sister, who was also injured, brought them over to the state for treatment, and without their parents. They were just small children, and I was pretty young at that time myself in my early 20s. It was a life-changing experience for many reasons. First, it was uh, a chance to do something that helped change the lives of innocent children who, in this case, were permanently maimed. But, you know, if you could get them walking again and give them opportunities for a better life, you know, it was an accomplishment, even just on a one-on-one basis. And then it also was a way to educate Americans. So, again, we're, we're responsible for what's happened there in many ways. 
and the fact that Americans don't know what's going on and don't have even the basic knowledge or concept of how our funds are being used in many ways to destroy the lives and even kill and injure innocent children, that to me is an injustice because, okay, we may support it, which is, you know, in its own way a terrible thing, but the fact you don't even know that it's going on is in some ways even worse. So I, having these kids come to the States was also a way to expose and, and educate people. And then also as a way to organize and to empower communities in the U.S. to be more actively involved in supporting this cause of justice in a positive way, um, not through any form of violence or hurting anybody or causing any harm to anyone. On the contrary, it was unifying people to help these kids, and that's what happened. The community got involved uh, and supported them, and finally, for me, as a, on a human level, on a spiritual level, it gave me purpose and meaning in my life, which would come back later on in my life to have a big role in helping me heal. How difficult was it to get the children to the U.S., leaving their families behind? And I imagine they've been distraught, not only leaving their families, but also what was going on at home. Of course. Well, those are two questions. First, yes, it was challenging to get them into the U.S., from a logistical point of view, getting Palestinian children out of the West Bank and Gaza, then, and even more so today, is extremely difficult because of the permit process that the Israelis have created, meaning that, for example, today, people from the West Bank and Gaza cannot use, for the most part, the Israeli airport in Tel Aviv. They have to get a special permit from the Israeli military, which is very difficult to get. And also, they have to travel through Jordan or through Egypt, whatever. It's a very long, expensive, arduous process. So that whole process of moving people for treatment outside is very difficult. And then there's a visa issue with the U.S. government or wherever you're sending them. And then there is a whole other um, challenge of the whole social challenge of families being separated because you can't take the whole family for a child, often in many cases. We take them without their parents because the parents are not able to travel. They have other kids. The U.S. government won't give them visas and so on. And then we have to deal with the social and psychological and cultural challenges of kids who are injured, who've already suffered this terrible physical trauma, being separated from their families, going to a foreign country, a foreign culture. And that's why we depend very heavily on our communities in the United States to help take care of these kids and make sure that their time abroad is as smooth as possible. So it is a difficulty, but we have people in place in our organizations whose responsibility is to take care of these kids and ensure that they get the um, proper psychological, social, and emotional support to make this process easier and also to ensure that we have proper relationships with the authorities to make sure they're able to leave their country to get um, access to care they otherwise can't get. Can I stay with Mansoor for a little while? How did he get on? How did he manage that transition? Mansoor had a very strong personality. Actually, it's the one thing that attracted me to helping him in the first place. Is when I first met him, he was a triple amputee in a wheelchair with fresh bandages on his amputated stumps. And yet he had a very strong and cheerful disposition, telling jokes and being very much a center of attention in the hospital. And that was a sign that, you know, I really felt I wanted to help this boy because I thought if he did need help, that spark of light that he had in his spirit was going to be extinguished or uh, would be um, put out. So through the hardship of everyday life as a triple amputee. And when he went, started to get help in the U.S., he, 
he responded very positively to it. He was very stubborn, but in that stubbornness is what got him walking again and back learning English and eventually going to school and, uh, and having a better life. So he really had a strong personality and that was critical to this whole process. And he eventually went home? Yes. After a few months, he got his new prosthetics and was learning, learned to walk again and he returned home walking. And I saw him recently and he's still walking and doing great. Well, that was the beginning, Steve. Where did it go from there? It's been 30 years, 30 long years. And uh, from that first boy to where we are today, we've built a very large and effective nonprofit organization that is on the ground, not only helping injured kids like Mansoor get access to care they otherwise can't get, but we are the main organization sponsoring volunteer medical teams from all over the world who come in and provide surgical care and medical treatment and training for local doctors within the public health sector in all specializations that are not otherwise available includes all the various surgical specialties, medical specialties like oncology and neurology, everything that in the public sector is either underfunded or doesn't exist, we come in and bring those services directly to the people and try to upgrade the quality of care. We're also the main organization doing large infrastructure projects in the health sector, first by identifying specific gaps and then doing crowdfunding and raising through private donation funds to build up those services in in those departments. So, for example, before our organization got involved in this area, there was no cancer services for children in the West Bank and Gaza in the public sector. So we built a department in Gaza and we built one in the West Bank, both through private donations and thousands of donors all over the world. And now children with cancer in the West Bank no longer have to wait for permission to travel outside to the Israeli military. They don't have to uh, be separated from their family for treatment for the most part. They don't have to suffer the lack of care because no services are available to them locally. And that's because we built two departments, one in Gaza and one in the West Bank for children with cancer. We're currently opening a brand new pediatric intensive care unit and a pediatric cardiology department, each one more than $3 million. Both of them individuals all over the world, so we don't depend on government funding to support our work. We get it all through private donors, which is a good sign that we're um, very transparent and a trustworthy organization because people believe in us and give us the resources we need to do our work. This is one of the main organizations doing a lot of different kinds of impactful programs on the ground, um, not only responding urgently to the um, uh, needs of children who are being affected by war, by poverty, by occupation, by COVID, and all of these external and difficult political and medical issues, but also doing long-term programs. We have a mental health program for children in Gaza who are being affected by and traumatized by the exposure to violence every day. They're living in the Gaza Strip. We have a program for children who are amputees in Gaza who have lost limbs as a result of living uh, in a uh, violent area, an area that's being traumatized through the use of violence against them and are supporting them through mental health programs, through social support, through medical treatment. We have a lot of different types of activities and programs that are supporting the development of the health sector and supporting the humanitarian needs of children on the ground there. But the most important thing we're doing right now is a strategic development program in which we're identifying all the various needs in all the specialized health care, and then we're putting together a five-year long-term strategic plan to address those needs, including in every area of medicine that currently deals with the health and support of children. Our organization is identifying through site visits, surveys, needs assessments, what those needs are that we can improve the quality of care, which will improve patient care, 
patient outcome, will save lives, and will reduce the financial and social burden of children being referred outside of the health sector for treatment they should be able to get locally. What's your relationship now with the people in Gaza with the many, many restrictions on aid organisations working in Gaza? So we're not a political organisation. We're not a religious organisation. We don't have political ties or any religious ties, any government or any party, political parties. Um, we have a licence from the US government that enables us to work in Gaza in the public health sector as long as we provide humanitarian aid and not have any political or economic ties with the regime there, which, of course, we don't. Our job is to only go into the public hospitals and provide treatment for sick and injured and needy children and provide training for local doctors. And, therefore, we stay out of any potential security or political restrictions or issues that come up. So we don't have any issues working in Gaza as long as we abide by the rules and regulations of the U.S. government and all other international uh, restrictions on being associated with the, any of the regimes which the international community deemed to be illegal. It must be very difficult, though, to just sit back and, and not be political in a situation like that. I mean, look, our job is humanitarian work. We're here to help children get medical care. And once you start using your own personal political views, that will only make that process more complicated and more different. Of course, we're all human beings. We all have our own views on how society and how politics should be structured. And I've already mentioned that my initial interest in this project, come, in this issue, came about as a student very much interested in equality, freedom, social justice, and self-determination. That's why I'm supporting the Palestinian people. But I don't allow that to become involved in my work. I believe my contribution to freedom in Palestine is the work that I'm doing on the ground there. There is no path forward politically for activists to get involved in the Palestinian issue that produces any positive results and enables significant change on the ground there. Unfortunately, politically, all avenues open to activists are very minimal and are traps for restricting whatever impact you can have. However, if you are an activist and you believe in social justice and you believe in self-determination and freedom, like I do, find a way to support the people there in a way which can make concrete changes. So, for example, my contribution to the Palestinian struggle is saving the lives of Palestinian children, making their lives easier, giving them some sense of hope and dignity and solidarity by bringing in hundreds of doctors every year as volunteers from all over the world to treat their children, by investing donor money into programs and projects to treat their children and empower their local doctors to be able to do a better job in a more independent and sustainable health system to ensure that the civil society in Palestine, particularly in the public health sector, can provide a higher standard of care than they currently are able to do. That's where I feel I can best serve this cause. I need to be involved politically, and, uh, and I think politics only makes, in general, anything, whether it's a Palestinian issue or any issue at all, only muddles it in a less effective, you see less effective results in your work when you involve your political views in what you're trying to accomplish on a humanitarian level. Can you talk some more about the foreign health professionals who come to work in Palestine with you? Yeah, I think that's our greatest resource as an organization is that we have, we have doctors and nurses from all over the world who give their time away from their families, away from their work, away from their home, to go on the ground into hospitals to provide 
medical care, sometimes highly complex surgery like brain surgery, open heart surgery, uh, in many cases saving the lives of children through their efforts as experts in their field. We have doctors from all over the world, including Australia, and we're very proud of that. And these are many of these are doctors who come 20, 30, 40 times. We have surgeon from uh, Adelaide in Australia, Dr. Francis Nathan, and his wife, Marilyn, who's a physical therapist. He's an ophthalmic surgeon. He's been through our organization to Palestine more than 25, 30 times, and he's provided sight-saving surgery for thousands of patients there. And again, that's the greatest contribution we can provide to the Palestinian people. And we're very proud that we have these type of volunteers because not only are they providing patients care they otherwise would have limited access to, but they're also providing training and support for the local doctors and often materials. Dr. Nathan always brings with him thousands of dollars worth of donated supplies. And then finally, it gives the people a sense of solidarity and support. And that's one of the greatest accomplishments as well because people in Gaza, for example, who have been bombed and killed and isolated, cut off, United Nations calls the world's largest open-air prison, they feel very isolated. And that feeling of isolation and hopelessness produces extremism, which then produces violence, unnecessary violence, and unnecessary suffering on the side of everybody. So we hope we can play a role in healing and peacemaking and hopefully reconciliation through the work that we're doing with our volunteer doctors. How do you get on with the Israeli Defence Force? I don't get on with anybody who's in the... I mean, I'm not involved with them. We're doing work for children who are in need of medical care. So obviously we're working in an environment that's under the control of the Israeli Defense Forces. The West Bank and Gaza Strip are both either controlled borders or actual under occupation. Uh, we're not violating any laws. We're not, viol- we're not providing any security threat to them. Um, we don't put them in any position where they feel that we are a threat to them. We're there completely separate and not in any way um, connected to them. Uh, we just abide by the law as far as what we're supposed to be able to do and enter the country, and then we do our humanitarian work. That's it. Do you also look to Lebanon and Jordan to speak and help Palestinians living in those places? We do. We have staff and offices in both countries, and our obligation is not just to the Palestinian refugees in Jordan and Lebanon, although that is a big segment of the work that we're doing there, and all of it is very similar to what I mentioned we're doing in Palestine. But we also help Syrian refugees, thousands of them. We've helped get medical care and medical treatment over the years. We also help Jordanian, Lebanese children get treatment and access to treatment. Um, And we're very proud as a humanitarian organization to help any child of any national background, of any religion, um, get the care and treatment they need that they otherwise couldn't get. So we are very active in those countries as well. We've helped kids from Iraq, Syria, Jordan, Lebanon, Palestine get treatment they otherwise couldn't get through a variety of different ways that we operate. It must be also very important to support the families of these children. I mean, we support them by treating their children. Um, we do have sponsorship programs where we provide these kids medication monthly if they have that expense or physical therapy or some type of ongoing support for these kids who are in need of long-term humanitarian aid with chronic illnesses, and that's support for the families. But we don't give financial aid to anybody. That's not an area that we're working in. We provide services and we provide material support such as medication, medical supplies, and other types of humanitarian aid. Steve, can you explain a little more about we? Who are the we that you talk about in this interview? Yeah, well, we are the Palestine Children's Relief Fund. 
Um, we are an organization of tens of thousands of volunteers and people all over the world who are involved in this organization in one capacity or the other, whether they're volunteer doctors and nurses, whether they're donors, whether they're staff members, whether they're host families, whether they're members of our chapters in different cities and countries all over the world. You can find out about our work at www.pcrf.net. That gives a full overview of the work we do and the people who are involved with us. And, again, we're not a political organization. We're not a religious organization. Our goal is to serve the humanitarian needs of children in the Middle East, particularly in Palestine. Well, it's consumed 31 years of your life. You can see it continuing for many, many more. Yes, I'm as committed as ever to um, this work. I feel as inspired and as motivated as I ever have to the people and the cause that I started serving back in 1988. And I feel that my 31 years of experience on the ground building this organization from nothing, from Mansoor and his sister coming for treatment to where we are today, has given me a certain um, responsibility to continue and use that experience and knowledge to continue to help save lives and give hope and healing to the people that are living under extremely difficult circumstances. Just finally, Steve, you've talked about Mansoor, who was there right at the beginning of your journey, you've treated or helped to treat thousands of children now. Can you tell us about a few more of those children and how you've followed their lives through their journeys? Sure. So there's another boy from Gaza. The first child I ever took out of Gaza was also a triple amputee. He was also 10 years old. That was in 1991. And his name is Nazar, and uh, he's back in Gaza again. I saw him a couple weeks ago. He has a brand-new baby, and he's walking again. And we continue to help him with his prosthesis whenever he needs support for equipment or materials or parts that are not available. We'll ship them to him or bring them over and give it to him personally to make sure he continues to walk and have that mobility, which uh, is so important for an independent life. And I'm good friends with him. Social media makes it easier to stay in touch with people and see how they're living their lives. Um, I have direct con- contact with hundreds of kids that we've helped who are still in Palestine or maybe have emigrated to the U.S. It's a true, true pleasure to see that them grow and have a family and a life, uh, a fulfilling life, one that they may not have gotten had I not and had we not as an organization come in and done something for them. So it obviously is a great source of pride, but it also is a great motivator to keep going and knowing that that impact can continue in other children as well. It's like that saying, isn't it, Steve, from little things, big things grow. It is true. I think, you know, if my story means anything, uh, it means that we as individuals can have a much bigger impact than we currently think we can. A lot of people feel very hopeless in this world. It's a very complicated world, and uh, it's very easy to become socially ostracized from our responsibilities and our knowing and feeling that we can have an impact. But I think it's important to remember that despite all of the noise in the world uh, with so much, uh, let's say, polarization, especially politically against different ideologies and the way that people are becoming more tribal and how they identify themselves nationally, nationalistic, um, religious, you know, ethnically, r- racially, we can get past that when we focus on acknowledging and respecting each other as, first of all, fellow humans, brothers and sisters, regardless of nationality and religion and ethnicity and anything else. 
and focusing instead on what we can do to help each other and love each other and heal those who need it. We're all very blessed in the West for the most part, living very potentially comfortable and much easier lives than people in developing countries and those who are under extreme political conditions like in Palestine. And with that comfort that we have, that stability that we have, economic and political, although sometimes it seems in the U.S. things are a little bit unstable politically, that comes with a responsibility to give back and to use your resources and opportunity and privilege to at least try to make the lives of others better in whatever capacity we can. Not everybody, of course, can start a nonprofit that works in Palestine, but there's so many other ways that we can just contribute to the healing and to the positivity uh, that we need to share with our fellow brothers and sisters rather than be part of a continued uh, polarization that draws us apart rather than together. Thanks very much, Steve, and for all that work. You're welcome. Thanks for uh, calling, and um, I look forward to um, to hearing um, this uh, program on the radio. And Steve Sosavi is the founder of the Palestine Children's Relief Fund. Do check them out. They do some wonderful work in Palestine. You're listening to Radical Radio 3CR. Every month or so, PhD candidate and broadcaster Sasha Gillis-Lakakis profiles a country in Latin America, its recent past and the present situation. Today it's a little different. The focus is on Sasha and his PhD candidature at the University of Melbourne. Oceans Apart, Policy and Development in Cuba and the Pacific, Lessons and Opportunities for Cooperation. I spoke with Sasha at the weekend and I first asked him why he chose to do a PhD with Melbourne Uni, a big commitment in time and effort. Yeah, look, it's it's a really interesting question uh, because if you'd asked me, you know, I would say three-ish years ago if I was going to do a PhD, I probably would have told you no. It wasn't even really on my radar back when I was doing my undergraduate degree. Um, in fact, my initial plan was to go straight from my undergraduate degree into a Master's of Education and end up probably doing secondary school teaching. That was my initial idea. But as uh, as I sort of began doing my undergraduate degree, in particular my the Spanish component, my Spanish major, you know, I was encouraged by people I knew, particularly people within the university sector. For example, Ralph Newmark, who used to be at La Trobe University, now at Melbourne University. He also runs Latin American Update with me. He encouraged me to, you know, pursue further studies in Latin American and the Spanish area. And, you know, I was always interested in it. It was always a really fascinating area for me. And, of course, Cuba was the particular interest that I had. So I ended up pursuing an honours here, focusing on Cuban cooperation with Africa. Um, and it just it, it just seemed like, you know, the natural thing to, to then move on to a PhD. You know, I, I was able to present at conferences. I've published articles. You know, people over in Cuba as well have been really receptive to the work I'm doing. So it sort of seems that it would be it would be remiss of me, it'd be foolish of me actually to not take the opportunities that have presented themselves and go further with, with my studies and end up with this PhD. Well, it's a big topic. Can you explain the topic for those listening? Yeah, so first I guess I'll, I'll start with the title of my PhD project or the working title, 
which is Oceans Apart, Drug Policy and Development in Cuba and the Pacific, Lessons and Opportunities for Cooperation. So I'll break that down because there's lots of components. But fundamentally, my project is concerned with two intersecting themes um, that have received very limited coverage or discussion together. So drug policy on the one hand, and then development in the global south, and in particular, competing models of development. So on the one hand, we've got neoliberal development, which of course is very well known. Um, 3CR deals with it a lot, different programs um, at 3CR. So, you know, of course, this involves opening up uh, national economies to foreign multinational competition, which disadvantages or in a lot of cases destroys local industry, national industry, savage cuts to public funding to things like education and healthcare and other vital... Overall, this, this program of deindustrialization, deregulation, that really, really promotes and benefits the private sector, and in particular the foreign private sector, at the expense of the nation and its people, and oftentimes the well-being of its people. Uh, and on the other hand, we have state-led development, which, you know, has been discredited for quite some time, since the 1990s, when, you know, the Soviet Union collapsed, the United States began a massive, you know, renewed propaganda campaign around the world to convince people that the only way was the free market neoliberal way. But, of course, you know, we now know that this isn't the case, particularly for countries of the global south. It's um, been very detrimental to economies in Africa, Asia, Latin America, the Pacific. It's been very detrimental to the well-being and the living conditions of people in these areas. And we know that, you know, this state-led development model is not a dead end. It's not a failure. And I have, of course, chosen Cuba as the example to demonstrate this. So alongside Cuba, there are additionally four Pacific islands, which I've chosen as case studies to reflect the neoliberal development aspect of this, and they are Fiji, Tonga, the Solomon Islands, and Kiribati. And I've selected these five case studies in total because, uh, well, in the first place, they're all similar. You know, they're all small, small, poor, developing countries with shared challenges. But additionally, and I think most importantly, Cuba cooperates with Pacific Island countries in the education and healthcare sectors outside of an independent state-led project. And this is chiefly involving sending medics to these fellow island nations and training their students on free medical scholarship. So I'm looking at not, not only existing cooperation in this area, but also ways that this could be expanded uh, to focus on issues relating specifically, of course, to this issue of drugs and drug policy, which is becoming an increasingly difficult challenge for Pacific Island countries. Uh, but it's an issue that Cuba, by virtue of its development model, appears to have handled in a, in a more effective way or more successfully. What have you found out about what's actually happening to those Pacific nations in relation to drugs coming into the countries? Yeah, so that's a really good question. And, you know, part of the reason I've chosen to focus on this is because it is such a recent area of research and it's one that is in need of a lot of further further research and further focus because it's in the really the last five to ten years, it's become quite a serious challenge across the Pacific region, particularly because the Pacific Islands sit, you know, in the almost squarely in the middle of Latin America, which produces vast amounts of drugs. And, you know, we're talking about chiefly Colombia, Mexico and Peru and the lucrative markets of Australia and New Zealand is now the most lucrative location uh, for drug trafficking in the world. It's actually overtaken the United States and it's overtaken Europe. 
So it's an absolutely, it's an absolute cornucopia for organised crime. And the Pacific Islands, unfortunately, are ideal transit locations for or transnational organised criminal networks because they are, well, as I said, they, they have underfunded public services, underfunded security services. There's a lack of regulation. The borders are very porous. So it's a very, very ideal um, location through which drugs transit on their way to Australia and New Zealand. Uh, but unfortunately, what we're also seeing now is these uh, Pacific islands are not only transit centres, but they're, they're fast becoming centres of consumption of drugs as well. So originally, uh, you know, 10, 15 years ago, it would have just been drugs were moving through these islands, which of course brings its own issues related to corruption and all those sorts of things. But now we are actually seeing Pacific Islander communities using these drugs. And now there are, there are local manifestations of organised crime on these islands. Particularly if we look at Fiji, there's a link between tourism and, you know, the growth of, of drug trafficking and drug use uh, across the islands in Fiji. If we look at Tonga, there's been a little bit more scrutiny on Tonga because there is what we could safely call a methamphetamine epidemic in terms of use of ice and those related sorts of drugs in Tonga. And, you know, that's having all sorts of serious ramifications, particularly on minority groups like women and children violence, for example, and, you know, in the Solomon Islands and Kiribati, in the case of the Solomon Islands, drug use has been a perennial issue ever since the ethnic tensions emerged in the 1990s, the early 2000s. That sort of violence and conflict meant that there was really fertile ground for this sort of drug trafficking to emerge. And in the case of Kiribati, it's such an isolated country, you know, vast tracts of ocean, very, very small land, uh, land surface. Kiribati just doesn't have the resources to police this vast area of territory. So all these Pacific islands share similar challenges, but there are also very unique situations within each context. So, you know, as I said, Fiji, for example, is particularly, you know, looking at this complex connection between tourism and drug trafficking, you know, the Solomon Islands, you know, it, there's been that issue of ethnic violence and conflict, which has been an on and off issue ever since the 90s, as I said. So, again, looking at all these different dimensions through these four different case studies. And then, of course, to Cuba, which, you know, has, in spite of being poor, it has a very well-funded public sector. It, it is, you know, state-dominated, um, and particularly in these areas like education and health and security, it is actually exclusively state-dominated. There is no private sector involvement, and, you know, this has actually allowed for responses to this issue of drug trafficking. Have you been to any of those four countries yet? No. So the plan is, and this has now been approved by the university and I've received my funding, which is really exciting. Um, so I'll be going to Cuba from November 8th to December 20th of this year to conduct my fieldwork in Cuba. And then next year between April and July, I will be, I, I, I'm yet to determine the exact date, but between those four months, I will be travelling to those four Pacific Island countries to conduct my field research there. What do you believe you're going to find? Well, look, it's it's really interesting. I, of course, have my own um, hypothesis. You know, I'm chiefly in all of the countries concerned, Cuba and the four Pacific Islands. I am interested in interviewing policymakers, you know, involved in, for example, the ministries of education, healthcare, security, looking at the policies that they've developed, what their analysis of the situation is, what their prognosis of this issue of drugs is. And then, of course, also asking 
people involved, you know, what they believe is the connection between drug trafficking and, you know, the particular economic policies and political decisions that have been made because of their either neoliberal or state-led development trajectory. I am anticipating to find an increasingly serious situation with drug use and drug trafficking in Pacific Island countries. But, you know, of course, there are local efforts to address these challenges. You know, in particular, one of the reasons I chose the Solomon Islands and Kiribati is that they are actually now experimenting a little bit more in state-dominated responses to these issues. So, of course, overwhelmingly, they are still neoliberal economies. Um, but, you know, we, we have seen, for example, with the Solomon Islands, you know, they're now looking at state-to-state cooperation with China on this issue of security. Case of Kiribati, they've actually reasserted the stake of the public sector in, for example, the provision of primary school and secondary school education uh, and public health care as well. So there are moves towards a more state-dominated form of development and drug policy in a few of these countries. Uh, so I'm also interested in looking at that sort of dynamic, whether or not it's led to improved indicators and better responses to this issue of drug trafficking, or conversely, you know, there's always the chance that I could find out that it has had potentially a regressive role, you know, and this is why I'm applying what's called hermeneutics, which is, you know, it's, it's a, an academic sort of jargony word, but it essentially means that I'm going to have my hypotheses before I arrive. Actually, I'm going to let what I hear and what I see guide my, guide my analysis and guide what I write. But, you know, it's all well and good for me to sit here in Australia and tell you what I think at the moment, but could be faced with a completely different sort of situation once I get to these countries and once I see what's happening. You know, the situation could be far more dire than I actually think it is at the moment. In some countries, it could be on the mend. But I do anticipate overall that the Pacific Islands will still be facing, you know, this quite a serious challenge with drug trafficking and overall indicators relating to health and education and public safety as a result. And then, of course, with Cuba, you know, I'll be able to tell you, of course, a lot quicker because I'll be going at the end of this year. Uh, but I do anticipate, based on what I've read as well and what I've already experienced in Cuba, that, you know, they have definitely handled this situation a lot more effectively, that while, of course, drug use does exist, it is to a very, very low degree um, in most parts of the island to negligible levels. And that, as I said, this state-led development trajectory has allowed them to implement effective education policy relating to drug prevention, effective healthcare treatment programs for substance addiction patients, and, of course, effective security responses as well. How long do you have to complete this PhD, Sasha? So the PhD, provided I complete it on this full-time course, which I'm currently enrolled in, it will be a total of three years. So I'm now coming to the end of my first year. Uh, So two more years after this. End date will be February 2025. Um, So just right at the start of 2025, I'll be handing in my PhD. No problems with Melbourne Uni and your topic? No, look, I, I can actually say that Melbourne University has been very, very supportive with this entire, during this entire process. You know, they've been very forthcoming with support when I've needed it. My supervisors, um, Adrian Hearn and Ralph Newmark, have been excellent in the feedback they've given me and the support that they've been giving me throughout this first year, uh, particularly, which is, of course, the biggest learning curve that I've had up to date uh, because the PhD is quite a lot more work, as you were saying, compared to an honours year or, or an undergraduate degree. The one thing I will say, and, you know, this isn't unique to me, this is something that all 
PhD students or master's students need to do if they're going to be talking to other people or visiting locations outside of Australia. Um, and that is, of course, the ethics approval process. So I actually had to submit uh, an online form essentially detailing the nature of my project, the types of people I'm planning to interview, and basically flagging any sort of issues that might emerge relating to ethics or safety, um, either for myself or for research participants, so those people I'm planning to interview or sites I'm planning to visit. This was quite a challenge because my thesis is dealing with the issue of drug trafficking and drug use, which is considered a high-risk topic, so I actually had to have my project reviewed by a specialist committee. So most projects will go, they call it just a regular academic committee, but mine had to go to a specialist high-risk committee, so there was extra scrutiny on what I've written and the sorts of um, the sorts of people I'm planning to interview, et cetera, et cetera. At the end of the day, the feedback they gave me was really useful, um, and it, it really did allow me to sort of strengthen um, the arguments for why I will be visiting certain areas, why I'll be interviewing certain people. Uh, I've developed a much more effective safety management plan as a result. So it's um, it's all it's all worked out. It only ended up taking about uh, a month and a half in total, which was really good. But for some people who you know who are who are dealing with even more sort of high risk issues or countries or areas, that ethics approval process can take months, sometimes up to like nine or ten months. So it's definitely something that it can be a challenge depending on what you're doing and how you write, uh, but thankfully it's all worked out well for me. Well, all I can say is that you're in pretty good hands if you've got Ralph Newmark on your team. Yeah, absolutely. And look, as I said, you know, Ralph has been studying Latin America for many, many years. He's, you know, very well versed, you know, and particularly in Cuban history as well. And my principal supervisor, Adrian Hearn, as well, he's one of the most renowned experts on, on Cuba in, in Australia. So he's, you know, he's been an invaluable person to have guiding me up until this point. And again, as I said, they've just been really, really good with the feedback they've, give, they've been giving me for the stuff I've already written for them, first chapter for my PhD, things like that, and for things like the ethics approval process and approval for funding as well, because they've, of course, been around this block many, many times. They know, you know, they know what to write, what not to write, what the, um, the committees are looking for when they're looking to approve ethics or approve funding. So it's, um, it's been really, really valuable to have their support. Well, it looks as though I'll be talking to you in the new year. Absolutely, and um, there'll be many, many things to discuss, I'm sure, based on what I uncovered during my six weeks in Cuba. Thanks very much, Sasha. No worries. Thanks, Jen. And I was speaking with Sasha Gillies-Lakakis, PhD candidate, and he'll be off to Cuba next month and later next year to four countries in the Pacific, all to do with his PhD, which the title is Oceans Apart, Drug Policy and Development in Cuba and the Pacific. Lessons and Opportunities for Cooperation. It'll be really interesting to talk to him in the early part of next year to find out what happened in Cuba and then later how it went in the Pacific Nations. This is 3CR. The estimate as to the number of US bases outside the US is 750 spread across 80 nations. Today we look at an area that is not classified as a foreign base, but could well be. I'm speaking about Shannon Airport in Ireland, in a country 
which we're being told is a neutral country. I rang Ireland to speak with Edward Horgan, who is on the board of World Beyond War and a coordinator of Shannon Watch. I'm reading from an activist fact sheet. Part of the US military conveyor belt of death, and that's Scott Ritter, former UN weapons inspector in Iraq, speaking about Shannon Airport in July 2003. The use of Shannon Airport by the US military is directly linked with the ongoing conflict in the Middle East, a region which has been destabilised and devastated beyond recognition by US military activity. And that's Mick Wallace, TD, from Air Island in October 2014. And if Shannon was being used by any other group to cause the type of damage that the 2.25 million US troops that have passed through Shannon have caused, then the US would rightly identify it as a target. And that's Dr Tom Clonan, Security Analyst, Ennis Court, February 2015. When I spoke with Edward, I asked him first, for those who are not familiar with Ireland, where is Shannon Airport? Yes, it's an airport on the west coast of Ireland. In the olden days, after the Second World War, all aircraft flying from Europe to the United States had to refuel at Shannon Airport, so it used to be quite a busy airport. Now it's more a regional airport. Our problem with it in recent years is this. It has been used by the U.S. military to fight its unjustified wars in the Middle East, and this is a breach of Irish neutrality. Ireland has been a neutral country since the foundation of the state just over 100 years ago. It's also considered to be an act of neutrality in that we like to promote international peace, and we, and we use our neutral status to do that by supporting the United Nations, and uh, in particular our defence forces are actively involved in UN peacekeeping around the world since the 1950s. OK, can I take you back a few steps? When did the US begin using Shannon Airport, and what were they doing then? Uh, I'm a former officer uh, with a rank of major in the Irish Defence Forces, so I was one of those who um, worked as a UN peacekeeper in the Middle East and elsewhere. After the terrorist attacks on the United States in 2001, I discovered that our government had invited the US government to allow the US military to use Shannon Airport, and particularly for the um, US and NATO attack on Afghanistan in 2001, and we started protests at Shannon Airport against the US military use of Shannon Airport. But you said it's not in the Constitution or it's not the law of Ireland that the US should be using that airport for war purposes. Yes, uh, and Ireland has declared itself to be a neutral state, particularly uh, since just before World War II. And because of that, we are bound by international laws on neutrality not to allow belligerent countries like the US to use our territory or our airports. So it is a breach of international law by both the US government and the Irish government. I took the uh, Irish government to the Irish High Court in 2003. At this stage, um, we also became involved in the Iraq war in 2003, and the High Court ruled in my favour that Ireland was in breach of international law neutrality by allowing the US to use Shannon Airport. So it's important um, that uh, 
I believe this international law and all laws, the rule of law is hugely important and it's been broken on a regular basis, particularly the UN Charter um, by unlawful, unjustified wars. What happens to those planes when they land at Shannon? Do they stay for days or do they just get refuelled or what happens? A little bit of both. The, the aircraft are refuelled at Shannon Airport and it's a combination of US military aircraft, particularly transport aircraft like C-130 Hercules, but also civilian aircraft who are in contact with the US military transporting US troops to Shannon Airport. Our estimate is that since 2001, over 3 million armed US troops have passed through Shannon Airport over a 20-year period. And clearly, um, the US have no need to use Shannon Airport. They have hundreds of other airports in the United Kingdom and in Western Europe that they can use. So they don't need to use Shannon Airport uh, except to involve Ireland in their uh, what I would regard as criminal activities uh, in unjustified wars. Well, if they tried to use other airports, would they be welcomed? Yes, there are plenty NATO or airports in NATO countries, particularly in uh, England and Scotland, uh, that are equally suitable for refueling. So I would regard um, what the US and NATO have become by abusing international law they become the equivalent of a criminal protection racket. What we are seeing, in, in my view, is wars for resources and proxy wars at the moment um, being waged in Ukraine. Clearly, uh, it's not just the U.S. Uh, because the U.S. had abused the U.N. Charter and now we have Russia doing the same in Ukraine, waging an equally unjustified war uh, against the people of Ukraine. We are equally opposed to what Russia is doing as we are to the US and NATO. But it doesn't explain to me why they want to use Shannon above other airports. Why is that? Why do you believe? I believe it's to involve a neutral country in their um, unlawful wars across the world. The Irish government uh, has gone along with us. It may even be for um, corrupt reasons. It's of no benefit to Ireland. In fact, um, it actually costs the Irish taxpayer money to allow the U.S. military to use Shannon Airport because the, um, there's a ridiculous agreement whereby um, military planes belong to the United States uh, who refuel Shannon Airport. All their air traffic control fees are paid for by the Irish taxpayer. So it has actually cost the Irish taxpayer well over 60 million euros uh, over the last 20 years to allow them to use Shannon Airport. So it's ridiculous from our point of view, in every point of view. And we suspect, in fact, that there may have been corruption and bribery involved in allowing the US military to use Shannon Airport, which is difficult to prove now. Now, there is the local peace and human rights group of which you're a member, and that's Shannon Watch. Can I take you back to February 2003 and the Catholic workers known as Pitstop Plowshares? And one of those was an Australian. Can you tell us about that? Yes, Kieran uh, O'Reilly, who is a good friend of mine, uh, was actively involved and one of the organisers of an action at Shannon Airport in which five Catholic workers, including Kieran O'Reilly, went into Shannon Airport. There was a US Navy aircraft at the airport and um, they 
carried out uh, what we call um, Catholic workers' peace action on the aircraft, did uh, allegedly $2 million worth of damage to the aircraft. They were dragged through the coast on several occasions. There were a number of reads or mistrials, but eventually they were found not guilty by a jury in Dublin on the basis that the actions were justified um, in order to prevent a greater evil. The Irish laws um, are at least reasonable from that respect. So uh, it was quite uh, uh, an important judgment. And in the meantime, there had been several other um, peace actions at Shannon Airport, uh, including a number involving myself. In fact, I'm before the court coming up next January for going into Shannon Airport with another peace activist attempting to search again a, a U.S. Navy aircraft and uh, allegedly writing some graffiti on the aircraft. There has been a whole series of such actions and protests. Just can I stay with Kieran O'Reilly and his friends for a moment? Did that action by them and the damage to the plane, did that mean that the plane stopped coming for a while or didn't it stop them? It obviously took quite some time to repair the aircraft, uh, so it uh, stopped that particular aircraft, but it didn't stop the use of Shannon Airport by the US military. In spite of that, and in spite of the court decision that their action was justified, the government still allows uh, the US military to use Shannon Airport. In the High Court case, which I took in 2003, two years later, the judge clearly ruled that the Irish government were in breach of international laws and neutrality, but at the same time, the government continues up to today um, to breach international laws at Shannon Airport. In recent times, an Australian connection. On the 7th of May, on the 7th of May last, a large Ukrainian uh, Antonov cargo plane collected, we believe, up to six 155mm howitzers from the Australian Army, transported them from Australia via Japan and Canada landed at Shannon Airport, stayed overnight, and then took their cargo of um, heavy artillery onto an airport in southern Poland. Uh, and these guns have now been delivered to Ukraine and have probably been killing people in Ukraine in the meantime. How much of all this is known by the average Irish person? A lot of it is known by the Irish people because we go to great efforts to publicise it and the peace actions that we undertake at Shannon Airport are partly or significantly designed to inform the Irish people are aware of it and the Irish people strongly support Irish neutrality. Our governments in recent years have tried to end Irish neutrality and have partly succeeded. But the reality is that over 75% of the Irish people have always, and even in more recent times, with polls and whatever, strongly support the continuation of Irish neutrality. So our governments are acting against the wishes and the interests of the Irish people. And does it matter which government is in power, which party is in power? Are they all the same? There are two parties that are in power at the moment. They are the two parties that have existed since the foundation of the states and actually fought a civil war among themselves a hundred years ago. Now, at the moment, um, the main opposition party is Sinn Féin, and uh, they support Irish neutrality, and we hope in the next election there will be a change of government. But we will be continuing to protest at Shannon Airport, and it's not just about the niceties of international law 
and that sort of thing. Um, it's partly and primarily for humanitarian reasons. I'm involved in a separate project called Naming the Children, which involves trying to put names, all the children who have died in Middle East wars, waged unlawfully by the US and NATO. Our estim estimate so far is that up to a million children have died as a result for war-related reasons in the Middle East since the war in Afghanistan began in 2001. And this is um, a crime against humanity. It is mass murder on a huge scale. And the vast majority, well, clearly all of these children, uh, in addition to the adults who were killed, but all of these children were civilians, totally innocent, and their lives have been destroyed. So, so what we are doing and what Irish neutrality is trying to achieve is to prevent such crimes against humanity being committed. Can I take you back to 2017 and the action by you and your friend that's ended up with both of you in, in trial? That's, yeah, yeah, that's correct. Yes, uh, we went into the airport over the fence in order to uh, attempt to search the aircraft that were being protected by the Irish police and by a patrol of our Irish Defence Forces are protecting the US military channel airport who are in breach of international and Irish laws. Again, because the matter is before the courts, I can't elaborate too much, but we allegedly wrote some graffiti on one of the aircraft saying, danger, danger, do not fly. And we asked the police and the Irish military to search the aircraft. In fact, there were two, two US Navy aircraft, uh, transport aircraft at the airport, traveling from the United States and eventually going on to Kuwait in the Middle East. They were clearly involved in supporting the, the wars in Iraq and in Afghanistan at the time. So uh, again, this is five years ago and the, our case has been, in, in our view, deliberately delayed uh, in order to inconvenience us because like the Catholic workers, the government and the prosecution are aware that we are very likely to be acquitted because we have insisted on getting a jury trial and that will uh, very likely ensure that we get a just decision at the end of the day. There is another trial too, and it's two Americans this time, isn't it? That's right. Uh, uh, Tara Kauf and uh, Kenneth Myers two U.S. Veterans for Peace. I am a member of the organization called Veterans for Peace. And in 2018, I think, sorry, 2000, yes, 2018, Tara Kauf and um, Kenneth Myers again went into Shannon Airport in order to um, search two other um, U.S. military aircraft. Again, they were also being protected by U.S. military, by Irish military and by Irish police. They were found uh, not guilty of criminal damage, but were out, outrageously um, found guilty on a spurious charge, in our opinion, of interfering with the airport of trespass and not guilty of doing any damage to, to anything in fact. Um, they were then found guilty of a spurious charge of interfering with the airport and fined an outrageous um, amount of €10,000, which was eventually paid in fact by peace activists on their behalf. It's not only soldiers or military who are on these planes. As you've said before, it's military hardware, isn't it? Uh, yes, it's both soldiers travelling with their own automatic rifles and 
three million of those have passed through the airport, but a lot of military hardware uh, is also going through our airport. And this has been denied and been lied about by our government. Uh, in fact, on the the six 155 millimeter houses that were transported last May from Australia, eventually to Ukraine to Shannon Airport, the aircraft involved did not have permission to bring those to the airport. And they effectively lied by saying that um, they were only carrying machine parts or something in that line. Um, and, of course, none of the U.S. military aircraft going to China Airport are ever searched to establish carrying munitions or not. So, And, again, in our um, estimation, up to 16,000 um, U.S. military aircraft have passed through China Airport since the, the war in Afghanistan in 2001. Shannon is a, an international airport. How do they keep the civilian yes. flights f- separate from the military? Uh, they don't, in fact. If you were going to Shannon Airport yourself as a civilian passenger, you would very often find yourself in the middle of um, two or 300 US troops who are in having coffee and whatever while that plane is being refueled. So there is no separation. And that in itself is a danger because some of the aircrafts traveling to Shannon Airport we know have been carrying explosives. If one of those aircraft went on fire, the airport is completely unsuitable, you know, for such military cargo and uh, um, people are endangered. Also in recent times, uh, because of the war in Ukraine, Ireland has taken a very one-sided uh, anti-Russian stance on this. The Russian government knows that the airport has been used to bring weapons and soldiers to, to Ukraine. We also know this, in spite of denials, that U.S. soldiers on the, are on the ground in Ukraine assisting the Ukrainian forces. So, so there is a likelihood, in fact, that if, if, if the war in Ukraine gets more serious, Shannon Airport could be targeted by Russia. And that is a serious concern to us also. Now, these U.S. soldiers who are mixing, having coffee with the other passengers, do these soldiers have to stay in the airport or are they allowed out into the general areas of Shannon? Uh, Both, in fact, they use the duty-free, they use the coffee shops and whatever. And on on occasions, um, some of these aircraft transporting the troops stay overnight so the U.S. soldiers come out of the airport and stay in local hotels in full uniform, both a gross breach of international laws and an insult to the Irish people as well, because uh, the vast majority of the Irish people are strongly opposed to this breach of Irish and international laws. There is a monthly vigil. Where do you hold the vigil? It's held at the entrance to Shannon Airport, and we usually have... Um, up to 20 peace activists there and um, if there are any US military planes at the airport during our vigil we then go to the Irish police and ask them to search the plane which of course they never um, none of these aircraft have ever been searched uh, by the Irish police or by the Irish military as they're passing through the airport so uh, and again we use this to help publicise what's going on because it's important that the Irish people are aware of what's going on and the dangers associated with US military use of Shannon Airport. One thing we haven't touched on, Edward, is the use of Shannon for rendition during the Afghanistan war or the, during the Iraqi war. 
What can you tell us about that? Yes, uh, clearly torture is a heinous crime and uh, a clear breach of the UN Convention Against Torture. The uh, CIA, in fact, uh, and the US military use Shannon Airport, particularly in 2001, 2002 and 2003, to bring prisoners from Afghanistan in particular and from Iraq to Guantanamo and elsewhere. We know the Shannon Airport was used clearly because this activity is highly secret. We can prove conclusively which prisoners were brought to Shannon Airport. The European Parliament had a special investigation in 2005 and 2006 into European Union complicity with the um, torture rendition program. And I, I was one of the people who made a submission to the European Parliament on Ireland's involvement. And so, so that's quite a serious issue also in that it makes Ireland and the Irish government complicit in the torture of innocent people in, in Guantanamo. And it's just another very serious breach of international It must also be a conflict for the people who work at the airport to know that all this is going on and that the majority of people in Ireland are opposed to it. Yes, unfortunately, the, the workers at the airport are themselves complicit because they, they help to refuel the planes, uh, they, they help to provide services for the soldiers who are passing through. So, uh, yes, and that does make them complicit. We have tried on a few occasions to encourage the workers at the airport uh, not to facilitate and service these planes, uh, but we haven't been successful in that. That's just an additional problem. Clearly, we would like, if the workers at the airport refuse to refuel these aircraft, we had uh, an example uh, back in the 1970s during the apartheid regime in South Africa. A number of workers in one of our main supermarkets refused to sell South African goods. Uh, and again, quite courageously, uh, they were sacked by the company. Their colleagues then also refused. And uh, that you know, eventually was one of the incidents that helped South Africa gain independence. So... Clearly, the workers at Shannon Airport, in our view, should not be servicing U.S. military planes that are involved in unlawful wars. How likely is it that Sinn Féin will win the next election and actually stop this practice of sending warships, warplanes through uh, Shannon? It's very likely. Already, in fact, Sinn Féin has a, can, yeah, already Sinn Féin has the largest party um, you know, in Ireland in the recent polls by a significant degree. So it, it is likely, uh, and or at least there is a good chance that um, they will win the next election. There is always a danger, of course, that uh, they might change um, and do a U-turn. But we are hopeful, in fact, that Irish neutrality will be restored properly in the next government, which should occur in about two years' time. But, of course, in all such situations, there are no guarantees. Some other of our smaller parties uh, who were quite supportive of neutrality in the past, when they got into government, they did a U-turn. We are hopeful, in fact, that Sinn Féin won't do that. Can I ask you just two more things, Edward? Veterans for Peace, how important is that group for you? It's quite important because uh, clearly... Veterans for Peace, both in the U.S. and elsewhere, are people who have seen war at first hand. 
I was a peacekeeper during the Yom Kippur War in the Middle East, uh, and I saw the devastation caused by wars. I've also worked very extensively as a civilian, observing elections in post-conflict situations in places like East Timor, uh, Indonesia, the Congo, and elsewhere. So I've seen the devastation of war, and the same would apply um, the presence for peace in the U.S., consists of people who fought in Vietnam and who would have been involved also more recently in the Iraq War and the Afghanistan War. So uh, they are a special group who have seen war and rejected war. And in the modern context, particularly with the risks of nuclear war, which are very real, the devastation caused by wars, the environmental damage caused by wars, presidents are very much aware of this. It's also important to point out that um, in the Afghan and um, Iraq wars, war crimes were committed, in particular, in fact, by special forces, including, unfortunately, the special forces of the US, the UK, and Australia, in Afghanistan in particular. And those special forces war crimes had never been properly held accountable for. And um, clearly, Veterans for Peace would be aware of this and uh, clearly and would be very much opposed to soldiers from their own armies coming, you know, being involved in unlawful and unjustified wars. Well, finally, Edward, the project naming the children, what are you going to do with that number and who's listening to you? It's clearly a huge project. Uh, we will never be able to name the one million children so it will just be a representative group of children from specific countries. So we're doing it country by country, uh, Afghanistan, Iraq, Libya, Syria, Israel, Palestine, and other countries, particularly in the Middle East. So our hope is to use it to, first of all, commemorate the lives of those children whose lives were cut short. And it can be a very difficult project even to research because uh, not only do we come across their names, but we come across photographs of, of these children, in, particularly in more recent times in Yemen, you know, where uh, children have been blown to pieces. Huge numbers of children in Yemen have been starved to death. Uh, so, uh, and children everywhere. In fact, we include the children who were killed in 9-11 in the terrorist attacks on the United States one of whom happened to be an Irish child. Uh, she happened to be, you know, a four-year-old who was on the plane with her mother on one of the planes that crashed into the Twin Towers. So uh, we make no exceptions. All children are totally innocent. And our hope is that by, by publicising this, that we may alert the people around the world as to what's going on. Well, thank you so much for talking to me. And... Are there any final words you'd like to say? Well, except that the, at the moment, in addition to people being killed in wars, the destruction uh, of the environment and the real risks of, of nuclear war are the risks at the moment of a nuclear accident, Ukraine in particular, Zaporizhia uh, and elsewhere. So the risks of annihilation of humanity, in fact, at the moment, are far greater, in fact, than they were during the Cuban Missile Crisis. So even that in itself is not being properly exposed to the people of the world. Some of our international leaders are actively talking and planning on a limited use of nuclear weapons 
by Russia and in response by NATO. And now we are also being told that the um, this new UKIS agreement between Australia, the United States and the United Kingdom talking about uh, expensive purchases of nuclear submarines involving Australia and others in the possibility of nuclear war. So the huge risk of nuclear war at the moment. All the best and we'll continue to try and promote peace. It would be my view that there is always an alternative to war. There's always an alternative peaceful option. These need to be used rather than the destruction caused by war. So nice to talk to you. Let's hope for peace and not war. I've been speaking with Edward Horgan on the board of World Beyond War and a coordinator of Shannon Watch in Ireland. This is James Henry here and you're listening to 3CR 8.55am and digital streaming on 3cr.org.au. It's 20 years this month since the US Senate voted to go to war against Iraq with the invasion in March the following year, an invasion opposed by many in the US and millions worldwide. Dr Tim Anderson has visited Iraq recently. Tim, it's not possible to understand the situation in Iraq today, I believe, without looking back to the US role in the destruction of what was then a modern educated nation prior to the 1991 bombing and subsequent invasion in 2002. Yes, and of course the invasion of Iraq and Afghanistan were two very brutal open acts of aggression. Uh, We know the result of the 20 years of war against Afghanistan now. With Iraq there were several stages. First of all was the invasion, the destruction not just of the government but of the state and the, the construction under US supervision of a new divided Iraq, um, with separate Kurdistan region, for example. Then, with the in, in the second decade of the of this century, there was the advent of these huge proxy armies. As Joe Biden, as Vice President, admitted in 2014, all funded and armed by U.S. allies to overthrow the Syrian government and also to destabilize the Iraqi government, because what the U.S. feared most was. A, a new union between Iraq and Iran, which was not possible under Saddam Hussein, and Syria. So the Iraqi, the new Iraqi system in a moment of weakness went to the UN and called for help to fight ISIS in 2014, and that led to the reoccupation of Iraq by, by US troops who were still there in, both in Iraq and Syria, trying to keep the, the two divided. So that's been an important part of the whole U.S. strategy and the reason while they're trying to, on the one hand, disarm and weaken, undermine any independent peoples and states there, um, also trying to posit themselves on the borders and keep those, those nations divided. And, of course, we've seen in recent years Israel constantly attacking Syria to try and get rid of the spectre of and a strong Iranian ally in Syria on on the borders of their occupied Palestine. So all of these wars are linked. It's not really possible to understand them without without looking at the relationship between them and the U.S. overall strategy. Tim, what's left of the the nation of Iraq? You've said it's all 
broken up into pieces now, but the health system, the education system, the beautiful rivers they had, what's happened to all of that? Well, it's a big question. I mean, the, the, the key problem for the Iraqis is that they are still divided uh, institutionally and there's also this um, the use of this um, character, Muqtada al-Sada, who has a huge following amongst the Shia population in Iraq, but has been taking money from the Americans and from the Saudis and so on. And so he's a factor to keep dividing and destabilizing the, the system there. It's been very difficult for political will to come into the Iraqi system there, and the northern Kurdistan uh, section is now occupied by Mossad and the U.S. up there. They're using it for operations against both Syria and Iran there. So it's, it's a very it's a very difficult situation for the Iraqis, even though in many respects they have money. Even though in 2014, when they faced that huge crisis with ISIS there was a mobilization of these resistance militia which were quickly incorporated into the Iraqi military, um, the Hashid al-Shabi, the, the, the popular mobilization forces, and that crossed all, all the sects in, in Iraq but was particularly from the Shia majority. Uh, despite that, there's still a great deal of division and difficulty, for example, in finally ejecting the U.S. occupation, which is small but very very powerful still in many respects in, in weakening the state there. Who do you meet with when you go there and what do they tell you about life? I've been to Iraq twice and it's both been at the invitation of people in the Iraqi government. First of all, the popular uh, militia and second of all, there was a conference on Palestine which was held in Karbala, south of Baghdad. So of course you meet a range of people there. Um, I haven't spent a lot of time in Iraq, but I've been to two conferences and had a, had a chance to see Baghdad and see some of the outcomes of the occupation. For example, if you go, when you're coming and going from Baghdad Airport, for example, which is now called Abu Mahdi al-Muhandis Drive, one of the, the the popular commander of the of the popular militia in Iraq who was assassinated by Donald Trump in January 2020, um, there are posters everywhere of Mohandas and Soleimani, the great Iranian general of the U.S. So the U.S. is still there, but nevertheless, there are, there are posters everywhere of the people that the U.S. have assassinated there. So it's a strange, sort of surreal situation in a way. When I was there five years ago in Baghdad, noticeable to me, um, coming from other parts of the region, that the, the public discourse about the role of the Americans is submerged, you know, because there's this type of elephant in the room phenomenon in Iraq. Because the system is weak, and it's um, it, it's difficult to on the on the media, for example, in public forums, to speak out openly against the Americans because they still have their agents, they still have their influences there, you know. So this is a country that was broken, crippled in many ways by the invasion, destruction of their state you know, the slaughter of hundreds of thousands of people, the terror that followed that, which was orchestrated by the U.S. We know that the U.S. was behind ISIS um, and kept supporting them. It keeps using them in many respects still in the border regions against both Syria and Iraq. So there's a great trauma, I would say, a psychological trauma on the Iraqi people, and that's part of the whole division and weakening that the U.S. is still applying to that nation, trying to keep it separate from Iran, trying to keep it separate from Syria. On the economic front, how are the people getting on? 
Well, because of that weakening, there's still what you have is it's many respects like what legacy the French left in Lebanon. If you divide people like that, you don't have a a strong state which can have strong public services. I mean, they're almost non-existent in Lebanon. They're greatly weakened in Iraq, even though Iraq has resources, it has an oil economy, but that often doesn't help developed countries. It means there's money around, it means you have groups, typically corrupt groups, which benefit from those sort of, that sort of division and appropriate the, the resources of the country to themselves without developing strong social services. So the Iraqis have some possibilities, but they, they, they can't, uh, for example, assert their will in certain areas. You know, they occupied in the north, they have this division which causes periodic political conflict, you know, there was a, there was one fairly recently, and it's fed by the US which loves to destabilize. They don't want to see a strong Baghdad, basically, that's why they wanted to carve out um, a stronger Kurdistan, put into the constitution that you have people divided into sects. In a sense, both Lebanon and Iraq suffer that same sort of problem. You said you've been to conferences on Palestine. What is the line with your friends there or the people you meet on Palestine? Well, historically, there's a huge uh, support in the Arab world for Palestine and for the colonisation of Palestine and for the repression of the Palestinian people, the daily slaughter of young people by the, the regime in occupied Palestine. There's a huge reserve of of goodwill and solidarity and even Saddam Hussein who is considered a a traitor to the Iranians and many of the Iraqis and to the Syrians nevertheless also felt obliged to support the Palestinian people so everywhere there's a great support for the Palestinian people and a recognition of the Israeli colonizer as as the enemy in the region Um, it's a question of how that support is mobilized and, and put together the conference that I went to was in Karbala which is a a holy place for the Shia Muslims in particular, you know, because it's the site of where the, the slaughter of Imam Hussein many centuries ago and a, a place of pilgrimage. More more pilgrims go to Kabul than go to Mecca and Medina in, in Saudi Arabia these days. So, but at that conference there was a great crossing over of Sunni and Shia groups there and uh, it was a conference to re-energize, if you like, the support for Palestine there were many uh, relatives of famous martyrs or people who were killed. You recall that young woman, Razan, who was shot dead in Gaza. She was a paramedic. Her mother was there with a bloodstained jacket. There was a man, the father of a young boy, who was famously filmed being, being killed by the, by the Israelis 20 years ago, uh, Mohammed Daha, hiding the father and son, hiding behind a... a, a uh, a stone while the, the Israelis were shooting them. So there was a there was a great emotional um, display of um, the, the the reasons why Arab people feel so strongly in supporting their their Palestinian brothers and sisters. There, this was just one of, of many conferences that are held to to try and mobilise or remobilise the, that support, and with video links to Palestine. Which country did you travel to next? In Lebanon, of course, um, I've been there many times, but um, uh, I was staying with friends on the, on the border, on the southern border there with occupied Palestine, and it's a fascinating area because the occupation and the fences, the walls down there, the walls in many cases are like 
the wall between Jerusalem and and the West Bank. You know this huge sort of imposing wall, which on the on the Arab side you have they've turned it into you know an artwork of the resistance. Basically, you've got that on the on the Lebanese occupied Palestine side too. But there's also a blue water border down there on the occupied Jolan, a large, very large part of Syria that, that the Israelis occupy. And there you have a semi-mountainous sort of area which has no wall at all because the mountain is so steep in some part and there's a river that there's, you have a Lebanese resort on one side where people go and swim in the river and have picnics and so on. And you have on the other side this occupied area which is really internationally recognized as Syrian territory, but occupied by by the Israelis. You have parts of Lebanon that are also still, smaller parts that are still occupied by the Israelis. So it's enormously complicated, strange sort of area down there. And it's um, with a lot of historical, recent historical relics like the Qiyam prison, where when the Israelis were occupying southern Lebanon, they kept many people and tortured them there. It's regarded as a prison like the ISIS prisons, basically, at that time. So southern Lebanon is still an extraordinary area with lots of lots of very dramatic history. What about the rest of Lebanon? Did you travel? Yeah, normally I, I'm in Beirut and in the south. I haven't traveled to some of the historic areas, and, and, and Baalbek, for example, and, and up north, really, because um, I haven't been to every part of Lebanon. Um, it's mainly the south and Beirut. And who were you meeting with? Well, there are there are many groups in um, in Beirut. There are Palestinian groups. There are resistance coalitions. Basically, in, in many respects, Beirut has always been a hub of organisation for different political groups. You know, so if you spend time in Beirut, you have to come across a lot of interesting characters. There's a great Arab media networks in in uh, Beirut. So it's an interesting place, but it's also suffering the the economic siege by the US of the entire region. One of the articles I wrote when I was there was the siege of West Asia. Really all of the countries from the Mediterranean there across to Pakistan are under some sort of economic siege. If you include Afghanistan, which has had its assets stolen, central bank assets stolen, and was imposes what are called sanctions, which are really illegal coercive measures. It's actually simply stealing the assets of those countries and trying to weaken them, trying to trying to create some sort of coercion to change the government in those systems. How are they doing that? So it... Lebanon's in a, in a very difficult situation. On, on, on the ground in Lebanon, you know, there are, there are people fighting to get the contents of garbage bins. You know, there are poor people going through the garbage bins. You know, it's a very sad situation. The Lebanese economy, the popular economy, uh, is in a very bad state in some ways, worse than Syria, for example, its neighbour. Can you describe what, what the Americans are doing, that economic siege? What is it stopping the Lebanese government doing? Well, first of all, there's never been really a strong Lebanese state. You have from time to time something they call a government, but it doesn't have very, uh, very much power in the system there. There's a central bank, which is effectively supported by the French and the Americans, which has a, a fair amount of power, and it, it, um, it's responsible for the financial collapse uh, a couple of years ago where a lot of money left the country. The Lebanese currency is almost worthless these days. It's really the, its value is disintegrating, worst in the region in many respects. And on top of that, you've got 
these so-called sanctions, that is to say the US has imposed these coercive measures against the resistance party Hezbollah and anyone associated with it, which really means the Lebanese government because Hezbollah has been a leading part of the, the any coalition in, in Lebanon for the last, what is it, something, uh, seven or eight years basically. So the partial so-called sanctions on Lebanon and Iraq both, that is to say certain parties the US has imposed these coercive measures on, it means they block any financial services to those sorts of sectors, means there's all sorts of individual people who are not even part of Hezbollah or part of the the popular mobilization groups in Iraq that the US will, will block financially. And since the US effectively control the SWIFT system and, and dollar transactions, that means they can strangle the economy of, of particular countries. So the partial so-called sanctions on Iraq and Lebanon in many respects become similar to the more comprehensive um, or what was it called maximum pressure sanctions against Iran and the, and the maximum pressure with third-party sanctions on, on the Syrian economy. They're, they're very comprehensive. In Lebanon, for example, members of the largest Christian party, the Free Patriotic Movement, are also personally and individually uh, sanctioned or have coercive measures against them because of their association with their Hezbollah colleagues in, in government. Do you have the opportunity to visit any of the Palestinian refugee camps in and around Beirut? Sure, yeah. Um, I visited them a few times, um, once with some South African former political prisoners who came along to support Palestinian political prisoners. And those so-called camps, whether it was in Lebanon or Syria, are pretty much semi-permanent suburbs. But the problem is that in Lebanon, they face a very difficult regime, much worse than Syria, because they can't work or own property in the same way that Palestinians in Syria can. So they're sort of committed to, or they're relegated to running small businesses and people accuse them of being involved in crime and so on like that. So they're, they're still in a very subordinate position to the Lebanese in the Lebanese system. In Syria, they have similar rights without being citizens because they keep their Palestinian citizenship, but they have similar access to health services and schools and things in, in Syria, such as it is. Syria is under very difficult economic conditions. There's much greater equality for people in the so-called Palestinian camps, although, of course, some of the large ones, like Yarmouk in southern Damascus, were pretty much destroyed during the war, and there's only a very slow return to those camps. In Beirut, some of those infamous camps, you remember Sabra and Shatila, the, the site of the terrible massacres by the the Israeli proxies 40 years ago. Just the, There was a commemoration recently of that 40-year anniversary of that, where Lebanese proxies of the Israeli military slaughtered thousands of Palestinian civilians and Lebanese Shia civilians to their, their neighbours in in Beirut. When this is just Sabra and Shatila are part of southern Beirut, basically. So those so-called camps are still there. They're effectively permanent suburbs of um, of Beirut and and parts further south too. And as I said, there's also these areas in the south where Palestinians and, and Lebanese both were were locked up by the Israelis for, for many years. And of course in these refugee camps you've got three generations now and often the grandparents still with the yep. key to the door. 
That's right, and, and that's the case in occupied Palestine too because within occupied Palestine you've got people who've been displaced once and sometimes there. You know, in, many of the people in Gaza have been displaced a couple of times out of what they call 48 Palestine, what was originally the, the core of the, the Israeli regime, basically. Um, in uh, Bethlehem, for example, uh, or Bethlehem, which is part of occupied Palestine, there's an outer suburb of Bethlehem called Dehesha, which is one of those camps created in after 1948, and with, as you say, three generations of um, of people living there. In other words, people have have been born and grown up in those sorts of circumstances. And one one interesting thing about that is that the the culture of those camps within occupied Palestine is actually fairly different to some other parts of occupied Palestine, where you have you might say middle class Palestinian people with property if they own fragile because the Israelis find all sorts of pretexts to steal land from people and uh, annex it to some new colony or for a buffer zone or for a road of some new colony within occupied Palestine. But nevertheless, even with some little property that a Palestinian family has in occupied Palestine, they have a different attitude to those in the camps because the people in the so-called camps uh, don't own property. They don't even have any privacy, as was pointed out to me, because there's small little concrete boxes that were, that were created and placed on top of each other and by the UN refugee um, agency that deals with that deals with uh, displaced Palestinians. And so they've grown up in a different culture. So you find people in those camps are far more militant against the new colonists coming into occupied Palestine and they're the ones out in the front line throwing stones and so on as the the new colonists come down with their, with their automatic weapons. Whereas the um, the Palestinians that own some property are less likely to be involved in those sorts of direct clashes, you know. So there there are internal differences as a result of these this displacement and and the, the dispossession of the Palestinian groups. Can you talk a bit more about the Palestinians in Syria? Is it known how many there are and the conditions of those camps? I know you said they're better off than Lebanon, but what does that mean? So in Syria, I mean, originally there were more than half a million after the the Nakba, the the great displacement of 1948. There was, of course, ethnic cleansing before 1948 and the, the creation of the Israeli regime. And since then too, and of course, including the the big wars since then in, in 1967, for example, but of that, say, more than half a million that went into Syria, uh, there's been a lot of, um, of course, new generations have grown up since then in the same way as we mentioned before. And also there's a great deal of intermarriage between the, the Palestinians and the Syrians. So you have a lot of families that are, you know, one side is Palestinian, the other side is Syrian there. One of the big camps was Yarmouk in the south of Damascus, but you have other important camps. There were populations that went into South Syria, into Daraa, for example, there's a big uh, population of Palestinians in Aleppo in the city there. So they're all over and they're intermarried to a degree. But as I say, the, the, the system is different there because Palestinians in Syria enjoy um, like a type of a residence status where they have access to health services and, and, and other things like that and they can get employment and so on. But they keep their Palestinian status so as not to be deprived of the right to return because the right to return is a huge theme and 
In fact, the, the conference we were talking about before in Iraq was organized by a group based in Beirut, which is called the Global Campaign for the Right to Return to Palestine, because there's such a big diaspora. I mean, if you look at it worldwide, even though the immediate displaced people are mainly in um, Jordan, Syria and, um, and uh, Lebanon, uh, to some extent in Egypt too, but worldwide there's a bigger population of displaced Palestinians outside than inside. I think there's something like about 7 million Palestinians inside occupied Palestine, if we include Gaza, 48 Palestine, the West Bank and so on. But there's the same or, or somewhat more outside. So the whole issue of refugees and the right to return is a huge is a huge theme in, in the region. I was reading a report on Syria which said this is the, the tenth year of conflict, half a million dead, 13 million displaced, 5.5 or 6 million refugees. Is that correct, do you believe? More or less, more or less. Um, there has been a return to some degree um, and um, the problem is that the refugee situation, let's say, in Turkey and Lebanon in particular, to some extent, it's been resolved in Jordan. But in Turkey and Lebanon, there's, it's, a, it's hugely politicised. Effectively, the UN agencies and the, the Turkish authorities in particular have, have kept a sort of permanent displacement there, which is now wearing thin now. There's a lot of discrimination against Syrian refugees in Turkey, also in Lebanon, really. But the, there are UN agencies and outside governments that are funding these refugees and still imposing a blockade on Syria. So what it means is that there's a little incentive for many of them to return home if the situation is economically difficult at home and they can't rebuild. I mean, the financial blockade means that it's, it's extremely difficult for reconstruction in Syria at the moment. And yet there are sort of these cash payments for, let's say, a lot of the Lebanese who are living along the border there, and 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 in Turkey, it's it's the the blockade is much more physical because really, uh, you have that occupation of northern Syria still by the Al Qaeda groups backed by the Turkish army. I was looking at the Turkish army placements in northern Syria a week or so ago when I was there. They haven't moved, despite some rhetoric from the Turkish government recently. So. And that applies all the way across, and then you have the U.S. occupation, which is in most, most but not all parts of the border with Iraq. So, as I said, the, the, the foreign occupation of the two big, by the two biggest NATO armies of Syria, it really, in many respects, is trying to keep Syria divided from its neighbours, and particularly from its eastern neighbours, from from Iraq. Just finally, Tim, well, what are your final words? Well, I think that, as I said before, the, it's not possible to understand the wars in the West Asian part of the world unless we look at them all together. There is a coherent project which the U.S. had of trying to dominate the region. It's failed in many respects. The big terrorist war against Syria failed. The ongoing attempts to undermine and weaken all of the states there from Afghanistan across to across to Palestine and Lebanon is still in place effectively. Everything possible is being done to prevent the integration and the normal normal neighbourly relations you might expect between states there. There's a concept that's used by Israeli and US intelligence called an Iranian land bridge, which they greatly fear. It's the idea of having a 
let's say, train, road, rail, energy, communication, the links between Tehran and Beirut or Tehran and Tartus or Tehran and Palestine, which would be enormously beneficial for the people of the region. But if they're kept divided with foreign occupations, with proxy terrorist armies, with these economic wars, then it's very difficult for economic life of ordinary people there. And that's what they want. That's what the US wants. It wants people to be desperate to try and change their governments. They're not happy with the government in Lebanon or Syria or Iraq or Iran or Yemen or, or Palestine, for example. And so they keep this pressure on. on and, and the only way really to defeat it really is for those states and peoples coming together. And that is gradually happening because of the failure of this regional war. Thanks once again, Tim. Thanks, Jan. And I've been speaking with Dr. Tim Anderson. You've been listening to a 3CR podcast produced in the studios of independent community radio station 3CR in Melbourne, Australia. For more information, go to allthews.3cr.org.au.